Welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here again. Thank you for joining us. If you're a guest with us this morning, thank you for visiting. Thank you for being part and choosing to worship with us here this morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at CF, so thank you for being here. Um, as we begin this morning, we're going to be starting a new series. We finished up in, uh, looking at Peter last week. We're starting a brand new series looking at the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back around you. And if you don't own a Bible, um, you can take that Bible and take it with you. Keep it. We love giving Bibles away. So if you're looking for Ruth in your Bible, that's page 222 if you're looking in a seat back Bible. It's page 222. Um, and as you're turning there, I'd like to thank um, yesterday, uh, amidst the rain and the thunder and the lightning, a group of women from the church went uh, out to the suburbs to get away from the city for the day and to spend the day in fellowship and uh, worship and teaching and, and had a great time out there. Um, they swam their way there, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so I'd like to just thank those who were helpful in putting that together. So Monica and Emily and Sarah and Amy, um, especially everybody that helped out. I know there was a lot of people who volunteered a lot of different ways. Thank you very much. If you, were, if you took uh, any ownership in that and helping make that run, I know yesterday was a great success. I've already heard some awesome stories about how yesterday went, and I'm glad it worked really well. So thank you, everybody who was involved in making that happen. Thank you so, so much. Um, so as I said, we're going to be in the book of Ruth this morning. Ruth is this beautiful, beautiful book, and it's this beautiful written account of God's sovereignty, of God's redemption, of God's grace. It's a book that revolves around three main people. Uh, you have Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Naomi and Ruth we're going to talk about this morning. Boaz we're going to save for next week. Uh, but this is a book that shows us that God is always at work in the lives of the people. Always putting things together. Always working for his people's good and for God's glory. Even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it seems like everything has gone to chaos and he's not paying attention. God is at work. And so that's, for that reason, I think it's a good reminder for us. Because as we look at our nation, as we look even just at our city, we see a lot of chaos and pain. And we see evil abound. But books like Ruth remind us of God's sovereignty, of God's control, and his work to redeem all things back to himself, to redeem all things that have been marred by sin. So as we begin this morning, I want to play a little game with you guys. Uh, I'm going to put up a quote from a famous novel, and you guys got to tell me where this quote came from, okay? Uh, so you want to put the first one up? So we beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Wayne, you're not allowed to answer. Lauren DeVries. The Great Gatsby. Point for Gryffindor. Um, next one. Don't ever tell anybody anything. If you do, you start missing everybody. Anybody? Anybody? Whoa. Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye. And the last one. I'm going to have a lot of fun with Dudley this summer. No? Go ahead. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yes. What does this have to do with Ruth? I just think it's funny. No. Um, this is something I, I actually tend to do. When I'm reading a novel, when I'm reading uh, short story fiction, I, what I'll do is I'll get like a chapter or two in, and then something inside me just wants to flip to the end. And so all of those lines were the very last line of the book. It's something I've done forever. I don't know why I do it, 
but I'll go back and I'll read just like the last like paragraph or last line just to see how things end. And usually it's stuff like that where it's like just totally ambiguous. You have no idea what the plot, what happened to get you there. But that's something that I like to do. And so as we begin Ruth this morning, I want to actually look at the last verse, the last couple of verses of Ruth. So if you're in Ruth, go over to Ruth 4. It's a very short book. Go to Ruth 4, verse 18. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. That's where this story is going. As we look at the different circumstances, we look at how God is moving throughout this book. This is where the story is going. It's going to end with some of the people in this story. You heard Boaz's name in there. We'll get to him next week. Some of the people in this story are going to be part of the genealogy of David. King David. The greatest king Israel ever had. Some of the people from this story are going to be part of his lineage. And not only that, taking a step even farther back, not only are they going to be part of King David's lineage, but they're going to be part of Jesus Christ's lineage. People from this story, Ruth, who I'll give you a spoiler, is not an Israelite, is not from, I think I broke it, is not from, Ruth is not from God's people, and yet she gets grafted in to the line of what God is doing. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the book of Ruth. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for bringing us all here safely. God, thank you for sending Jesus to show us how to live. God, thank you for sending Jesus to to be an example for us, to to show us how to be in relationship with you, to show us how to live in such a way that brings glory to you. Lord, we thank you for not being a distant or uncaring God, but rather the God who is ever-present, who is always paying attention, who always cares about what is going on, and who is intimately involved in our lives. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray as we open up and we read the book of Ruth that the message you have for us, the truth you have for us, the reminder that you are sovereign, that you are in control, will not only challenge us, but encourage us as we go into the world. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up right in verse 1 of Ruth. So go ahead and read with me. The words are going to be on the screen, but then they will disappear forever. So have your Bibles open. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In the days when the judges ruled, that's how this story starts, in the days where the judges ruled, This story takes place during the time of the Judges, which is about a 400-year piece of history in the Israelites' Israelites history. And during those 400 years, basically it was a continuous cycle for the Israelites. What would happen is they would be 
in right relationship with God. They would be walking with him, pursuing him, following him, and then at some point follow a false god. They would be led into temptation. They would be led astray, and they would rebel against God, and they would do things that God says, don't do that. So God would send judges to say, repent, come back to God, or else judgment is going to happen. And things would get really bad, and the Israelites would get oppressed. They would be attacked, and then finally they would repent and turn away from those things and go back to God, and everything was good until the cycle started all over again. And this happened over and over again for 400 years. Speaking of last verses, the book of Judges ends with this. Verse 25 of chapter 21 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the world that this story takes place in. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone decided, whatever's best for me, I'm going to do. That's the world this story takes place in. And in the midst of that, Ruth looks at a specific family living during that time, and we see how God moved throughout their lives. Because not only was everyone, and so what we see is not only was everyone doing whatever they wanted, Ruth starts off and says there was a famine in the land. And so because of the famine, this man named Elimelech takes his wife Naomi, their two sons, and they leave and they go to the land of Moab to find food. Which makes sense, right? That's practically speaking. There's a famine. they got to find food. They have to eat. And so they go to Moab. Elimelech and his family lived and were from Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Judah. That's the promised land. right? We know Bethlehem from later on because Christ will be born there. This is, this is God's city. Bethlehem in Judah is where they are from. The land. This is the promised land that God had given his people. And it said this was before kings. This was when it was God and the Israelites. Follow me. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. I am your king. I am your ruler. I am in charge. And just like I'm in charge of everything, I will take care of you, Israel. And so there's really only one of two options for why this famine hits. One, it could be judgment. It could be judgment for the constant rebellion, right? Over and over again, over the course of these 400 years, they rebel and rebel. And so this was something that had happened in the past where God was, it's God's way of bringing repentance out of the people. If you disobey, then fine, you're going to have a famine. Things are going to go poorly for you. Because God is in control of all things. He can use natural elements like rain or lack of rain and famine to judge, to bring judgment on people. The other option is that this is a faith-building situation. Because sometimes hard things come, tough things come to help test and strengthen and refine our faith. There are certain lessons that we can only learn by walking through hard times. And so regardless of why it came, the question that Elimelech should have been asking was, do I trust God? Do I trust that God is good and that he will provide and protect me and my family. We don't know the reason for the famine, but we do know Elimelech shouldn't have left. And not only did he leave the promised land, not only did he leave the place God had set aside for his people, but he goes to Moab. The people from Moab were natural enemies of the Jews. Their ancestry begins with an uh, with a incestuous incestuous relationship between a husband or a father and his daughter. They're related to the to Lot back in Genesis. And their whole history is marred by sin and corruption. 
There was a time when the Moabite people actually oppressed and ruled over the Israelites. Wars had been fought. People had died because of these poor relationships. And wars would be fought again in the future. The Moabites and the Israelites could not play play nice together. And while the text doesn't specifically say this is why Elimelech dies, I think it's pretty obvious that his rebellion, his choice to leave God's land and to go to live with the Moabites has to be taken into consideration. And so he dies and Naomi is left with her two sons. And they're in this foreign land. And the sons, who haven't had a dad who shows them what it means to trust God, decide, you know what, we're not going to go back to Israel. We're not going to go back to Judah. We're going to stay here. And not only are we going to stay here, but we're going to both marry Moabite women and just plant ourselves here. This was prohibited under the law of Moses. But they each marry. One of them marries a woman named Orpah, the other one a woman named Ruth. And they stay in Moab ten years. And during those ten years, neither woman has a child. And then the two sons die. So now we have Naomi, a widow, who has lost not only her husband, but her two sons. She's in a foreign land, and she has these two daughters-in-law, also foreigners, who have also become widows. That's how this beautiful story of redemption and grace and providence and sovereignty begins. With famine and rebellion and death. But that's just the opening credits, right? We're just setting the scene because God is at work in the midst of all of this. Look with me at uh, verse 6. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So finally, in verse 6, we get some good news. Famine has been lifted. The Lord has stopped the famine in Judah, and their situation, this situation that drove them out of that place ten plus years ago is finally over. And so Naomi and her daughters-in-law decide to go back to Judah, to go back to her home. See, I think it's common when life gets overwhelming to just be frozen and do nothing. Like, that's my default. When I am overwhelmed and stressed and beaten up by the world, I just sleep. Just try and ignore everything else that's going on. Ignore the giant to-do lists. Ignore the broken relationship. I just go to sleep and just I'll deal with it later. And hide from it. 
And I don't think it would be out of the question for Naomi to just stay in Moab and mourn the loss of her husband and her sons and let the situation take hold of her and keep her there. But instead, she hears that the land of God, the land of God's people is flourishing again. And so she chooses to leave the life she has established for herself over these, because again, it's been 10 something years, 10, 12 years at this point. She's met her neighbors. She's grounded herself there. She's got a relationship. She's got a life there. And she decides to leave all of that and go back to Judah. Because sometimes when life is hard and beats you up, you got to just take a first step. You just got to make a decision. You got to just say, okay, I'm going to take this one, one step at a time. Right? What's the old saying? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Sometimes it seems big and overwhelming and chaotic, and I don't know what the first thing to do is, and I'm just overwhelmed, so I'm not going to do anything. Naomi says, i got to do something. Even when it's bleak, she makes a decision and heads back to Judah. You see, while she heads back, and yes, it is the promised land, it is God's land. God's land is also filled with people. And Naomi is now a widow. And she rebelled and left with her husband. Which means she's coming back and she has no status. She has nothing. She will be the town charity case. There will probably be some shame accompanied with her heading back there. But she also knows that's God's place. That's where God's people are. That's where God dwells. She can worship again. She hasn't been to church in ten plus years. She can go into the temple. She can spend time with her God. And so she decides to leave. And after deciding to go, Naomi then takes inventory of the situation and decides her daughters-in-law would be better served to stay home. Naomi explains to the women that if they stay with her, there would be nothing but hardship and pain waiting for them. But if they stay in Moab, then they're home. They can stay with their families. They could potentially remarry. There is still a future and a life for them in Moab. But in Naomi's mind, there is no future for them if they stay with her. Now, this isn't a pity party for Naomi. This isn't woe is me. But she genuinely cares for these two women and wants what is best for them. In verse 8, she prays for them. She prays that the Lord would deal kindly with them. In the same way that they had dealt kindly with her sons, and with her. This word kindly is one of those words that's going to come up a couple of times throughout this book. That word is the word in Hebrew, hesed. It's a loyal, loving kindness. Often translated mercy. It's a deep care and relationship connection. And this kind of love, this kind of care, was a mark of their relationship to Naomi and so she prays that the Lord deals with them in the same way. Spiritually speaking, Naomi believes that the hand of the Lord is against her. She believes that the Lord is out to get her. She believes that the calamity that has happened upon her life is due to her family's disobedience. And she might not be wrong, but she believes that nothing good is going to happen to her again. And that those women will only see more negative events in their life if they stay with her. Because Naomi doesn't have the luxury that we do to flip a couple of pages and get to the end of the book. Naomi can't see far that far ahead to see that what God is doing is using all of this for her good 
in his glory. I think this is pretty common for us, is that we too can find ourselves surrounded by the chaos and ugliness of this world and then just think to ourselves, this is my life now. It's hard, and it's bitter, and I can't do anything about it, and this is just nothing good is ever going to happen again. Because we fail to remember that God is sovereign, which means God has control and authority over all things at all times. But Naomi believes God is just out to get her. Now, practically speaking, Naomi also realizes she can't help these women. She talks about not having any more sons, and even if somehow she got married and pregnant that night and had a son, she says, what, are you going to wait around for them? That's not, that doesn't make any kind of sense. And what she's actually talking about there, when she talks about having sons for the girls, is uh, a law that goes back to Deuteronomy 25, which basically said that if a man married a woman and the man dies, that his brother, assuming he was single, or whatever the closest male relative that was single was, would marry the woman and take care of her, provide for her, continue to keep the inheritance and the family name going. It was a law set up, like I said, back in Deuteronomy 25. And so what Naomi says to them is, look, that's not going to happen here. I don't have any more sons. This isn't going to, I, I can do nothing for you. And so Naomi believes there is nothing and no one else. She feels alone and helpless. And so Naomi is telling these girls she has no other sons to replace the ones who have died. These girls will have nothing, no one to redeem what has been broken. And so Orpah realizes the situation and sadly kisses her mother-in-law and heads back to her family house. But Ruth says, clung to Naomi. Interesting that two women, two outsiders, brought into this family, brought into basically identical situations, and their decisions are completely opposite of each other. I mean, it makes sense for Orpah to turn back. And it, make, it would have made sense for Ruth to turn back. But she doesn't. Because something is different about Ruth. Something has changed in Ruth. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Naomi tries to urge Ruth. Go with your sister-in-law. She's just down the road. You can probably still catch her. I can't do anything for you. Go. Go back. And Ruth responds, no. No, Naomi, you don't get it. I am with you. I am connected to you. You are my family. I'm not going anywhere. This is that hesed that we talked about on display. Loyal, loving kindness from one person to another. And you see, what Ruth is declared here in these verses, this isn't just change of address. And this isn't temporary. Ruth is making a decision. A decision to forsake and leave behind the life of false gods, false idols, child, child um, 
sacrifices that were part of worship in Moab. Leave all of those things behind. She says she will not return to those things, but rather she will stay and be buried wherever Naomi ends up. This isn't, Naomi, I will stay with you and care for you until you die, and then I'm going to be on my own. She's saying, I'm done with that life. I'm done with that. I'm with you now. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Now, was it Ruth's husband who showed her and taught her about who God is? We don't know. Was it Naomi's decision to go back to Judah? We don't know, but what we see here is Ruth declaring that she was done with the false gods and idolatry of Moab and instead followed and trusted in the one true God of Israel. That's amazing for a lot of different reasons. But think about it, because what is Ruth seen of how God interacts with his people? Ruth didn't know anything about the God of Israel until she got married and got brought into this family. And all she has seen in this family is that a famine sent them there and that all the men are dead. Famine and death. Naomi has been left alone. And yet, in seeing all of this, Ruth decides, I want to pursue that God. I want to be in relationship with Him. There is a faith and a hope expressed here. Because why else would Ruth decide to follow God if all she has seen is sadness and brokenness? She sees Naomi. She sees Naomi's desire to go back to God's people, to be around and be part of God's family, to be in God's land again. And she believes that this isn't the end of the story. That there's got to be something better coming. That something else is coming. And so realizing that Ruth ain't going anywhere, Naomi just says, okay, we're going to Judah. And they head out to Judah. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they show up in Bethlehem and everybody is freaking out. Now they show up in Bethlehem from Moab. That's about a week's journey. It's about a week's walk in the sun, in the desert. These two single women with nothing make this walk by themselves. The men in their life couldn't have made this walk, wouldn't make this walk, but they do. And they get into town. And Bethlehem at this time is a small town. 75, maybe 100 people at most. It's not very big. Everybody knows everybody. And unlike Chicago, there was not the transient thing going on. If you were in a certain town, if you were born into a town, you didn't leave it very often. And so these women come out and say, is that Naomi? Because they all remember her. It had only been 10, 12 years ago. They remember her. And so Naomi tells the woman she no longer wants to be called Naomi. She says, yep, I went away. I got a name change. Got to change the license. Because Naomi means pleasant. But her life has turned out anything but pleasant. And so instead she says, I want you to call me Mara. Mara means bitter. And she anticipates the questions and the gossip, and she tells the woman, yes, it's me. 
Yes, I didn't leave here with a husband and two sons seeking a better life to get away from the famine. And now I come back here a widow with no sons and no grandkids and this Moabite woman on my side. I went out full and I came back empty. When you look at Naomi and what she experiences over the course of this 10, 12 years, I think I can, I personally can understand why she feels the way she does. She's alone. She has lost so much. It's understandable that she feels bitter. That she feels that she has come back to Bethlehem empty-handed. Because I think if I was her, I'd feel the same way. Nothing in this text tells us that the things that Naomi has done have caused all of this wrong to happen to her. And yet she finds herself in this horrible, broken situation. But notice when she talks to Ruth and Orpah, and even here when she talks to the women in the town, she's not angry with God. She doesn't abandon the idea of God, right? She, she doesn't say, well, so much bad has happened, so much evil has happened, there clearly isn't a God. No, she never curses God. She never really gets mad with him. She just kind of frankly says, this is my life, and it's hard, and I feel kind of bitter. And that's okay. It's okay to be honest about where you really are. Because we walk into church every Sunday, and we see each other, and it's, hey, how are you? How was your week? And it was fine, good, busy, tired. And then we go out, and then we come back again next Sunday. Naomi is honest. Her theology might be a little off, but she's honest about where she's at. She's tired. She's exhausted. She's sad and she feels better, bitter and she lets the people know that. And that's okay. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean you have to pretend that everything is sunshine and happiness and rainbows all the time. Because the reality is that life is hard and messy and ugly. And it's okay to be sad and frustrated and confused. These things are normal. We should be allowed to feel them especially here in church, right? If we can't be real and honest with other Christians, how in the, who else can we be real and honest with? And the Bible shows us over and over again, Psalm, if you read through the book of Psalms, I've said this before, go to one page, David is rejoicing in God and his providence. Flip a page, he is angry and sad and confused and feels alone. Over and over again, because it's normal human life. If we can't be open and honest and real with other Christians, who can we be with? Because the reality is the thing that unites Christians together is our belief and our, our belief in and our desperate need for Jesus. Our realization that we have sinned, we have rebelled against God, and because of that we deserve death. But God loved us so much that he sent Christ to come and die for us, to come and redeem what has been broken by sin. And if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, there is new life, there is forgiveness, there is hope to be had there. That's the thing that unites Christians together, is the ability to say, I can't do it on my own. I have rebelled against God, I'm a sinner, I need help. That's our baseline. So when you say I'm a Christian, what you're saying is, I need help. Yes, okay, so then why? If that's who we all are, do we then have to try and put on this fake face like everything's fine all the time and I don't need anyone or anything ever? It doesn't make any sense. 
And so Naomi shares with the women, this is my life, this is where I'm at. I have come back empty. That's how she feels. And again, I think it's understandable, but I also don't think she's returning empty-handed. I think that there is God's grace and provision put on dis- being put on display. Naomi just can't see. God, through his sovereignty, through his providence, through his grace, has changed the situation in Naomi's life more than she is willing to admit. And he does so, if you've seen in chapter 1, he does so without any big Old Testament kind of miracles. Right? God doesn't just break in and like it's raining meatloaf. He doesn't break in on this one. And as we go through the book of Ruth, you're not going to see that this doesn't really, God is talked about, God is mentioned, God is prayed to, but there's no big Old Testament kind of miracle that we're used to. God takes the normal life and works sovereignly in it. He ended the famine. He eliminated the very thing that drove Naomi to Moab in the first place. And in response, Naomi decides to go back to be in the place and people of God. That's Naomi coming back with something. She's not empty-handed. She's coming back to be around God's people. She's coming back and the famine is over. Not only that, but Ruth is with her. Ruth herself has decided to leave everything about her family and her background and her life to be with Naomi. She has left the whole world that she knew to follow Naomi, and she has sworn that she will be with Naomi until forever, no matter what. And Naomi can't see it in this moment. And I'm sure at times the fact that Ruth is from Moab is this constant reminder of pain, of the loss that she experienced in Moab. And so though Naomi can't see it in this moment, this relationship, Ruth's faith in God, Ruth's love and hesed for Naomi is going to change Naomi's life forever. And then look at the very last sentence of this chapter. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Not only is the famine over, but it's harvest season, which means festivals, celebration. It's a time where people are more generous. The harvest season was always closely tied to people being more considerate to the poor and the destitute, taking care of people like the widows of the town. It's a new beginning. The harvest represents new life. God's provision. It's a turning point for Naomi and Ruth. The old life, the pain, the living among false idols, those things are done because Naomi and Ruth the Moabite are in Bethlehem. And notice in those last couple of verses, the author makes it very, very clear. He wants you to remember moving forward, Ruth is from Moab. She is a Moabite. That's important for our story. In this first chapter, we see Naomi deal with some really hard stuff. The death of her husband and her sons, being alone and stranded in Moab, and yet in the midst of all of that, she doesn't deny God. She doesn't curse him. In fact, in the midst of her suffering and hardship, she does what the men in her life wouldn't or couldn't do, and she goes back to God. She goes back to the place where she knows God and his people are. When life gets hard, when life gets messy, you're not going to find God by running away from him, by running away from his people. You're going to find him 
not by avoiding community, but by being part of God's people. That's what the church is supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be this on-the-earth example lighthouse for people that points people to God. And so when life gets hard and you run away from the church, you run away from community, you're not going to find him. You're going to find him where God's people are. In this first chapter, Naomi decides, I'm going back. Because life is messy and broken out here. I want to be in a relationship with God again. In this first chapter, we meet Ruth, this Moabite. Her lineage, her heritage, is marked by sinful, shameful events. Her family tree is messed up. And yet we see her turn from the life that she has always known of false gods and turn from everything to go with Naomi. And more importantly, to pursue God as her God. She doesn't know what's coming. She doesn't know what awaits her in Bethlehem. But she's willing to go. And remember, she's also walking in a widow. She's walking in a widow and a foreigner. And not just any foreigner, a Moabite foreigner. If it was going to be hard and a little bit shameful and embarrassing for Naomi to walk into Bethlehem, it was going to be double that for Ruth. She was going to be a pariah. But her faith and her hope challenge her and push her to do this. And it should challenge us in our own lives in how we view and trust God in our lives. Are we willing to trust his provision in our lives even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard and the world seems to be against us? Do we actually believe that he can take horrible events and use them for our good and his glory? And it's easy to say that when things are good. But when feet go to the fire, when when things get hard and messy, when the evil and sin of this world bear down on us, what do you actually believe? When you have to make a decision, when you are in the middle of the storm, what do you actually believe? Because sometimes you're going to find yourself in a storm, and sometimes that storm exists to help you answer that very question. These two women walk into Bethlehem. And when they do, Naomi may feel empty-handed at this point. What she doesn't know is that there's a man named Boaz who is going to enter into the scene. And through him, and through Ruth, God is going to show his sovereignty. He is going to bring redemption to Naomi. And he is going to put his grace on display. Let's pray.